Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. So, we need to figure out what to talk about, and mm-hmm. we've been on a we've been on a trend these last couple of episodes of kind of having callbacks to some of our other discussions, mm-hmm. and something that we have introduced or alluded to, or maybe dipped our foot in the water. Uh, but never really gone, you know, full deep dive mm-hmm. has been the replication crisis. Oh, the crisis. And I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about this. Is it a crisis? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why is it a crisis? Is the way, like, I think I, w- I, I would argue, and maybe we'll talk about this as we get into it, that it's not, it's not a crisis as in it's a doom to the field. It's not, but it is a crisis to the system that exists mm-hmm. in publishing and in academic research. Yes, I would echo that broadly. Um, I also feel like crisis is kind of an overused yeah. label for a lot of what's going on in academia, like the plagiarism crisis, the research crisis, the replication crisis, the funding crisis, the attendance crisis, <laughs> students aren't reading crisis. It's the, so, it's the, it's, it's our version of any political thing that ends in gate. Yes, no, exactly. It, depending on your education level, you either use gate or crisis at the <laughs> end of your. <laughs> and what's, What's kind of upsetting with a lot of this stuff, because just like a lot of that, like Gate stuff, it's it's there's a lot of stuff now that's being called X Gate, and it's not really, or it, it it's not going to be as serious. So the people who are actually doing bad things aren't really going to get, just like Watergate, aren't really going to get in trouble for it. Right, <laughs> and it tends to be a little bit more uh, spectacular in the news yeah. uh, than in reality. In reality. It, this it, researching for this episode was definitely interesting and I went down some weird rabbit holes but it was not the I don't know wor- world shattering event that Twitter made me initially think it was the people at the center of the replication crisis are still doing research mm-hmm. they are still just as popular as ever yep. they are still holding their positions of power and, mm-hmm. and much like I, I think we could probably definitely do a deep dive with um, retractions, which would mm-hmm. be really mm-hmm. interesting because that's a whole other problem. It takes 10 years to get something retracted if you're fighting against it. And at that point, it is still publishable. It is still receiving citations. This person is still getting popular. And then all of a sudden it gets pulled. Now, there, there are some exceptions to this rule, but ugh, it's just... And even are... when it does get pulled, like peer reviewers are likely not going to know it was pulled like it's not like that information is advertised and so you can get pulled research or faulty research or falsified research that's still continuously being published i had a uh while i was doing research for this i was just curious um because we've mentioned the power pose a couple times and Mm -hmm. it will make an appearance today um people are still signing the power pose as if nothing happened yeah, because if you don't hear the results or you don't come across that retraction, the official retraction, if you pull the article from an old place, and again, if you're publishing stuff, because of some of the stuff that we'll talk about, the nature of the system and the incentives involved, there are no real incentives for um, reviewing. Yeah. And so we're ending, we're doing it on our own time. We're doing it on no budget because we're doing it for free. 
I, I just got asked to review an article from Journal of Social Psychology. And Ooh. I, said, I said yes, because... Congrats it, on it, that I, line. Yeah, I mean, it actually seems in this case like a like an article that is kind of tangentially related to stuff that I've published before. Not... Right, but the problem comes in when people start getting accepting their peer review invites and they have no idea what the paper's about. And that's why I turned down the last one I got. There you go. Good job. Bucking the system. Because I don't, I mean, the argument is, is like where I'm at, I don't need it. Right. I have the privilege to not, um, not take one. So, so I guess, I guess we can, we can start by defining what this crisis with this, what the, we'll call it the replication issue. I like issue. What this replication issue is, and it starts with, was it Nosic 2015? Yes, Nosic 2015. So the reproducibility project in psychology from the Open Science Foundation, I believe, um, Center for Open Science, was a replication project with uh, several different labs across several different institutions, which tried to replicate 100 experimental and correlational studies published in three psychology journals um, over the course, I believe the project officially started in 2012, and then their results came out in 2015, and they determined that 39 of the 100 successfully replicated, and the rest of them did not. And of the ones that were replicated, the effect sizes were much lower than the original reports were. And that really started the whole controversy um, and crisis because people were starting to ask so like you had some good faith arguments on one side that were like oh replication's important we really should have been doing this more like let's take a even-handed approach to this and then you had the more wildly uh anti-intellectual yeah uh groups who were like aha we told you psychology was bunk and then you had other people who were very threatened by this. Um, I will we'll dig into her a little bit later, but uh, Susan Fisk, the author of yeah. The Ambivalent Sexism Measure, widely popular, um, The Hostile Benevolent Sexism. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that people going after psychology replication or publicly criticized the methods of psychological research were public bullies and quote methodological terrorists. Ooh. And that's... so she, she she went she went 0 to 100 on this one. I mean, I, um, I I kind of see it so that so for for any of our listeners we never really talked about sexism scales, but one of the things I tell my classes is that they're really interesting because on one hand you do get a couple of people who are really honest but sexism scales have a ceiling. Like if you do a one to seven scale, the ceiling's like a four. Mm-hmm. Because people will read a question and go, oh, this is sexism. And, right. Do you and hate then, women one to seven? <laughs> and go, oh, no, no. They're going to get upset at me if I say yes. And maybe, you know, maybe they don't. Maybe they do. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. And I could definitely see how she could get really upset at <laughs> Yeah, and I just, I was kind of sad because, like, I I agree that the sexism scales are, you know, not great, but also I'm partial to the ambivalent sexism scale 
Well, and I, I, the other side of this is that someone like Pisk and, and her colleagues have shown amazing adaptation to like social desirability of these scales by creating something like an ambivalent scale or by taking the, the scale that predominantly focused on women and then by flipping it to focus on male stereotypes, which it mm-hmm. turns out people are so much more ready to admit to. Mm-hmm. And they I mean, cr- I flipped her scale around and made it about uh, gay men who bought them and had great results i mean they weren't great because like people were ready to trash men who right. you know, did receptive right. anal but you know like it worked really well and i was very impressed and very happy with it yeah and so like you you have this as a really good example of researchers who are not only replicating their own work in different settings but like it shows the power of replication it shows everything that we would argue the people on the more positive open side of the replication crisis because like we do have a replication crisis and it's not that we can't replicate stuff. It's that we're not replicating stuff mm-hmm. that, and, um, Oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, she just, she went a little <laughs> off the edge, but, um, and the ambivalent sexism, great. No problems. Other works. I could see why she would feel threatened. Um, and like you said, with the power structure thing, like she perfectly benefits off this. She's at Princeton. She's, yep an old classic researcher at this point. I think ambivalent sexism came out in the nineties. So, you know, it's, it makes sense that of the people to freak out, she would be one of them. It's going to be predominantly the people who have been in the field a very long time who are benefiting from the system as it works, not the people who are trying to exist in the system until Mm -hmm. they get some form of tenure. Um, but and yeah. I will say this, this may be a conversation for a later podcast too, but I also am a little suspicious of the people who are like writing it hard, like the researchers who are writing replication and open science hard too, because that's, they're using this as their career builders as well. Kind of, I mean, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, we, we have these, these people who are doing kind of terrible things. We probably should talk about them, but then we have people calling them out, but also using the call out as a career to build themselves mm-hmm. up on YouTube and other places. And it's like, it's this, uh, this kind the, of yeah. weird balance of. Yeah. It's very much in line with the outrage marketing that you see. Right. And I'm like, okay guys, like I understand I'm with you open science gay, but also why are we zealots? Are you making money off of being a zealot? You're making money off of being a zealot, aren't you? <laughs> And, and what we do tend to find is, you know, again, um, in, in further replications, uh, uh, replication, these mass replication articles in 2018, uh, they sought to replicate 21 social and behavioral science papers from nature and science, so top tier stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and found that only 13 could replicate, which, I mean, it depends on the years you're doing it, but that's probably a good range. If you're looking at modern stuff that's just recently been published, you would expect some of it's not. But that's not too bad. It's about half. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the Center for Open Science again looked at uh, 180. They were 186 researchers, 60 different labs. They represented 36 nationalities, six different continents, and they focused on 28. So not only did they replicate, but multiple labs were replicating the same replication. And so they were doing mm. these these mass kind of meta analytic replications, and they found that 14 of the 28. Um, failed so exactly half um and what was really interesting about this is is that when something replicated with one lab it tended to replicate with all the other labs 
And when something failed to replicate, it also failed to replicate. It wasn't really like uh, some labs are seeing it, some are not. It was pretty across the board. There was little variation across samples and contexts. And the evidence is inconsistent with a possible explanation that failures to replicate psychology are likely due to changes in the sample between the original and the replication study. So they helped to debunk some of those arguments against Knox uh, or Nosek's uh, original article. They were like, well, you didn't have the same sample. And like, they're, but they're looking, if you're measuring it at the same, we'll get to this, in the same time. Because, you know, if we're measuring like stuff in the 1900s to stuff in <laughs> 2012, 2021 there's a bit of a historical yeah so but the one thing i wanted to 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 mention is as well uh, before we we kind of move on with this is that why i would call it the replication crisis isn't that we're not replicating in terms of like these specific studies is that we're not replicating at all we're just not right. performing replications that um, an analysis of publication history in the top 100 psych journals from 1900 to 2012 oh. indicated that approximately only 1.6% of all psychology publications were replication attempts. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, one in a hundred, mm-hmm. two or three in 200 um, are actual replications the rest are supposedly new ideas right i mean they are definitely new ideas we just don't know if they're supported or not right um and i do want to make it clear as well that you know this is a psych podcast so we're obviously going to focus on the psych end of this but there is a publication bias in the media at large about this replication crisis where it targets psychology but this is going on in lots of other fields as well which we won't necessarily dive into but cancer research is one of them clinical research um marketing economics sports science education i found some articles on how education is failing to replicate stuff so this is kind of like science across the board and some of the larger causes of this crisis influence all disciplines not just psychology it's just psychology is a handy uh punching bag uh i think it's 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 really easy especially from like a political sense to take a look at some of this new stuff that's coming out in psychology that's kind of showing some of these major social issues Mm -hmm. and saying well we shouldn't be able to trust these people because they're having a replication crisis well no it doesn't that's not what it means but if we were replicating more, if we were promoting replication, if the incentive mm-hmm. was there to replicate. Um, the other the other problem that comes up with this, and this is a problem across all fields, is um, is something that, so one of the first people to bring this up and one of the first prominent psychologists to really talk about this was Kahneman. And one of his arguments was that we should involve early, like, who, so if Fisk did the first study Fisk should be involved in the second study. And mm-hmm. um, another psychologist, uh, Wilson, comes along and says, no, 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 no. So the problem with this is, is that it's the people who did the first study. There could be something going on there. We want someone fresh doing it. And we've got research right. that now supports it can be two different groups. It can be groups from different parts of the world. We still find the same stuff. If it's a good study, if it's a replicable study, it should hold up in other settings. 
Mm-hmm. And and what Wilson, you know, kind of argues is is that there is also research that suggests that when you have these replications being positive, it's something like ninety percent of the time when it's the same authors. Of course, it replicates. Mm-hmm. But, but when someone else tries to replicate it, it's going down to like sixty percent, fifty percent. And so what else is going on here? And then we talked a little bit beforehand about things like how vague some of these early, even modern studies. Right. They're, they're not talking about the exact measures that they use. They're being kind mm-hmm. of fuzzy on some of their, um, their methodology. And so we talk about me- methodological terrorism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you're not explaining your methods clearly, or if you're being really vague, if you're getting stuff published on your name, or your introduction, because your introduction mm-hmm. could be fantastic. I've written some amazingly sound introductions. My dissertation, I would argue, is one of them. <laughs> it, it bombed. Um, I mean, it didn't bomb completely, but it mostly bombed. Uh, and the same thing, I would argue that like I, I'm really proud of some of like the introductions and papers that I've written, but they don't work because the mm-hmm. the logic the logic might sound like it's there based on previous research. But also, I'm not incentivized to write like that. I'm incentivized to come up with my confirmed hypothesis first and then write the introduction. Right, exactly. That was one of the issues I actually had in publishing a paper a while back. Um, I didn't make a specific hypothesis. It was very exploratory. And my reviewers were just like, why didn't you make a hypothesis? You should make a hypothesis. Like the literature like lines up in this way. Why aren't, why isn't there a hypothesis here? Why didn't you not make a hypothesis? And I'm just like, I, I emailed the editor and I was like, hey, the, the reviewers are like trying to get me to make a post hoc hypothesis and I'm not gonna do it. Like, I'm just not. So if that kills the deal and they were like, no, 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 that's fine. Just, you know, put in some language that says like, based off the literature, one could hypothesize this. It would be logical to assume this, but specific hypotheses were not made. And just, and I maintained that language of the whole thing because I was like, I'm not going back and like changing this. Like, Right. And I mean, at least it's good you had an editor who was supportive. Yes. No, the like editor was fantastic. Like in fact, both of the reviewers were supportive too, like beyond the pressure to put in a postdoc hypothesis, like the rest of the review was great. But that was kind of one of the things that stood out to me from that process was like, ooh, this is gross. But it's, it's again, it's that nature of the system. It's how those, those you know, prominent individuals who are succeeding from like research in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s are teaching their students, are teaching their students, are teaching their students, are teaching their, mm-hmm. students, are teaching their students. And it's hard as a mentor to want to teach your students differently because it's different if we're going into a master's thesis where you can be like, it's okay if you fail. Like you just have to show that you can do it. Like it's important to fail. And versus like, all right, you're going to need to get into a doctoral program. You're going to Mm -hmm. need to get a job and getting the job and getting those positions mean publications. Publications. Yeah, exactly. And And you're not going to get publications if the journal doesn't think that you're, article is going to get clicks right yeah Um, i i i'm kind of in this situation now but i I think it's a little different because one of the things that i did i'm I'm doing with a a student i have right now is that we're we're i I basically just gave him an old not an old data an old old data set but a older you know a couple years old or from last year 
data set to look at. And I was like, hey, like, tell me if you think there's anything interesting to look at. Like, yes, this is post hoc, but mm-hmm. it was kind of the first study of its kind that we were dealing with. And then you're kind of going in fresh. So it'd be kind of the same way of us publishing our data out there for other people to use. Right. And and what actually kind of worked out is, is that he came up with a hypothesis that we actually tested in a follow-up study. We asked the same questions. And so we're going to mm-hmm. try to do a replication with it to see, does it hold up over two? And so in that case, it kind of worked out where we were like, all right, go go back through mm-hmm. and see if there's just like, look at these questions and these items, and see if there's anything. Like before you look at the data, look at these items and see if there's anything that you can come up with a hypothesis on. And it's right. trying to like walk that line between p-hacking <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I guess, I mean, in this case, it's before he looked at the data, before I even knew what his questions were, you know, versus, uh, mm-hmm. and it was something that I didn't even think of originally and I didn't know the answer to until we went and reanalyzed it. <laughs> right. And also there's a big difference between like doing that and then publishing it versus doing that and then making another study to confirm what you thought you would find or what you did find. Right, right. As long as that's study one or this is where yes. we got the idea from, then we went and did something independent. Yeah. That's totally cool. Um, and that's kind of, I want to say that like, this is a bit, bit individualized because um, that's one of the perspectives that's floating around with the replication crisis is that it's like on individual researchers. Um, and yes, it's true. Individual researchers make up the collective. Um, but there has been some interesting work as to what may have caused the replication crisis on the individual level. So there are some questionable research practices. So there's like a list of common ones Um So failing to report all of the dependent measures in your study, Mm -hmm. deciding to collect more data after you looked at the results, failing to report all the study's conditions, stopping data collection prematurely because the results were found, Mm -hmm. rounding off p-values, selectively reporting studies that worked, deciding to exclude data after looking at the impact of the results, reporting unexpected findings as predictable, reporting demographic data that doesn't affect results when you don't know if it does. And then of course, falsifying data are the major categories of questionable research practices. And interestingly, um, there was a study in 2012 that took uh, 2,155 psychology researchers and ran them through this list to see which ones that they self-reported that they participated in. And uh, to make sure that they were as truthful as possible, the researchers created a Bayesian truth serum, which was essentially an algorithm which compared their self-report to the overall distribution to adjust for truthfulness. And they told the psychologists that depending on what the Bayesian truth serum output was, like how truthful it judged you to be, that would be a percentage of a donation to a charity of your choice, essentially. And so they couldn't obviously send Amazon gift cards to all the psychologists because then the psychologists would be identifiable um, and that would be disastrous for them. Yeah. Um, Just a little bit. Uh, The good news is, is that uh, from the self-report, 0.6% said that uh, they had falsified data. So that's tiny. Good. Um, (laughs) The Bayesian truth serum suggested it was probably closer to 1.7%. Um, so in terms of like the worst of the worst behavior, it wasn't, you know, I was, I was glad to see something less than 2%. 
Right. It means ninety eight percent of the people in the field aren't aren't openly falsifying, falsifying data. data. Which is kind of the, the the worst of the worst. I mean Yes. There's there's a there huge ethical difference between P hacking and, and just falsification. Putting, putting numbers into your Excel sheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Um yeah. The largest one was failing to report all the dependent measures. So this would be kind of a situation where you have a very large survey. You're like, these 10 dependent measures are going to predict why, and then only like eight of them do. So you just drop the other two and write the paper about the first date. And that's kind of upsetting because if you like in that scenario, like talking about the other two would be really interesting. Yeah, like, why wouldn't that work? And so the self-report was 63%, so that's rather high. Yeah, Um, That's a very common practice, apparently. Bayesian truth serum, 66%. I I wonder how much of that, too, is the difference between... Because I I think of, like, some of the research that I do with communities, and we have these, like, all right, we go in with, like, 10 hypotheses. Right, you've got, like, three studies in mind that you have to do in one single data swipe. Right, and so, like if I were reading that, like my only, my only thought and trying to maybe defend that high number is how many people are saying it because like, unless they get, do they give them a specific example? Um, or are they saying like, all right, like, do you do this? And I'm like, well, yeah, there's a lot of questions I ask that don't end up in this paper because this paper is about six of the questions or three surveys Mm -hmm. and not the other nine. Those are for a different paper or a different two or three papers because it's all, five or six hypotheses and i think one we're coming up with right now we have like one question and like five competing hypotheses for <laughs> right like and but something like that like in this case that's also a little different because in this case it would be this is the study one that we're talking right. about it's exploratory it's meant to be like all right let's see what sticks and then we're going to move forward with a number of of, of secondary studies or tertiary studies. right that's very different than what we're talking about in terms of saying like I looked at these five things, but only two of them were significant. So I'm just going to ignore the other three. Right. That's a little bit more malicious than like, here's our huge survey. We have to figure out how to cut this up because we're not writing a book about it. And we don't really go into stats, but by doing that, it also increases the, you know, all your other variable. Like, well, I guess but no, more, more, um, more variables will increase your effect size. Mm-hmm. even if they're not significant it'll it'll subtly um but it could increase the overall significance of your findings and so if you have let's say five items in and only two of them are significant your overall p value is higher than if you took those three out because it's only the hard the hardcore significant stuff mm-hmm. yeah that's that's a little a little sketchy when you're talking about a broader model yeah, that's, a, that's, that's the most common. The second most common is deciding to collect more data after looking at your results. So your data collection period's over, you looked at your results and you're like, eh, this didn't work. Let's throw some more participants in there and see what happens. Um, that was 55 to 58%. I'm trying to gauge myself on this and I'm trying to think like, have I done this? <laughs> <laughs> I think the only time we ever have or that we were, we're actually talking about it now is we're, we're trying to do measure construction. And so like, you need like 4,000 participants anyway to start. 
Mm-hmm. And we've only collected like a thousand. I don't even think we've looked at the data yet. <laughs> we've collected a thousand so far. So we yeah, need no, more. this would be a situation where you pull your results, run your run it. So like, let's say that like you had. I'm assuming this is probably a situation yeah. where you have like you need your a specific in rather than a specific like time frame for data collection. Because I could yeah. see a situation where you're like we're only going to collect data for two weeks on Reddit. You look at how many people you've collected and you're like, oh, we only got 20. We have to double down, post some more subreddits. Right. I think that's a different issue. That's happening. Yeah. We need like 100 people for this study. You get to 100, you run your results and you're like, eh, it didn't work. Let's throw it back up into the student pool and keep running it. And and just keep collecting until you get a large enough number where it kind of works out. Yeah. So that's that's one of the things that, that's the second most popular. And that's 50 to 58%. So those are the two most. Um, And then the rest of them fall between the 40-ish range down to the 0.6 range. So this is roughly a third of researchers. So that's still a lot. (laughs) That's still a lot. Like rounding out p-values, like if you got p is equal to 0.051 and you just report 0.05. That one was uh, 22 to 23%. Oh, no. no. That's a fifth. Oh, people. I mean, but uh, like, so... I, would, I would question anyone who reported a 0.5. I would, I would question anyone who reported a 0.4. Because, like, it doesn't take much. Like, That seems a little shifting. Yeah, if you got, like, a 0.4. Because if you got a 0.49, like, it doesn't take much to tip that back into non-significant. Mm -hmm. oh oh man okay okay so that one's a little rough um let's see oh the 45 to 50 percent range admitted to selectively reporting studies that worked so you ran 10 studies four of them worked so you reported them and then left the other six but that's kind of in line with our actual replication crisis and that we're not actually reporting null results or studies that don't work Right. Which is yeah. the huge problem. Like, I just imagine so many people running studies over and over and over oh, yeah. and over and over again because nobody knows if they work or not because all of those failed studies are sitting in filing cabinets and researcher offices and nobody's reporting it. So it, it doesn't have my, my favorite term in psychology. It all has heuristic value. Uh-huh. It, it all has the opportunity to give us information. And man, if we could save time by knowing that this stuff didn't work, mm-hmm. like imagine what we imagine we would ha- we would be have that time to replicate what did. Right? No, it'd be amazing. Speaking of, we're going to go ahead and plug the uh, journal in support of the null hypothesis here. So, yeah. if you want to clear out your filing cabinet drawer, help yeah. us with some epistemological knowledge. Yeah, we'll put the link in the uh, in the description because that's. Um... Uh, one of the few mm-hmm. self done uh, by a colleague mentor of ours who you know works on works on trying to publish null results because no one else is because mm-hmm. there's no money in studies that don't work right and that's part of this problem there's that incentive structure and it's just this constant issue that keeps cropping up again and again. Why do people mm-hmm. do these things? So you, you, we can easily blame the individual. We can say, this person is p-hacking. This person is not reporting their dependent, all their dependents. This person is collecting more data so it works. But 
the individual is fighting within the system mm-hmm. and the only way to get ahead is to play the system and or i mean for many psychologists the only way to get ahead is to play the system and to play the system means you have to find significant results you have to find interesting significant results uh, mm-hmm. if it doesn't work it's not publishable if it's a replication well it's already been done why do we need to publish this right I, and in some cases if it hasn't been done why do we need to? i had someone that i had to explain as their as a reviewer number two what hindsight bias was <laughs> because their response to me was don't we already know this and i was like no i could not find a study that looked at it this way that ran this particular mediation like it makes sense that we should already know this but whether it didn't work in other contexts i'd love it i'd love to replicate it but when am i going to be able to do that when is anyone going to be able to do that and get it published i'd love to replicate Mm -hmm. it and see if it still holds up but it turns out that this broader mediation this model that we looked at it it had not been looked at in that unique way We, we found you know path a was looked at path b was looked at path c was looked at but this combination wasn't. And I had to go like, you can't turn it down because you think it makes common sense that it should work. <laughs> right. You should have run it. <laughs> right. If you knew it all along. Huh. Um, Why didn't you tell us? <laughs> but, but right. But that, that, that's part of it. There's part of that incentive structure of you have to publish interesting new stuff, stuff that's going to get clicks stuff that's going to get these journals, people downloading it and buying their journal because, hey, no one's going to get a subscription to Journal of Social Psychology or Current Psychology or any of these other journals unless there's something interesting there. There's something Mm -hmm. that people might find or at least the reviewers and the editor might think people will find interesting. I mean, Mm -hmm. to a point where like if something is overdone, they'll sometimes just stop publishing it altogether or if they feel that something isn't done enough, they will stop publishing it altogether. I mean, they kind of work like fashion magazines, to be honest. Yeah, there are things that come in and out of trends, and mm-hmm. that they, yeah, it's just and that's the, kind of thing. That on that note, this is probably also related to the replication crisis. Is when we go to like international conferences, and I won't say which one, but we all know which one. You walk down those poster halls, and it's like you know you already know what studies are going to be there. Like after the uh, 2016 election, there was an entire Trump study section. And I was like, oh, y'all aren't going to be here next year. And they weren't. (laughs) And again, there was another one that was, I think it was the one in Portland that we went to. There was a whole thing about animal human pet relationships that kept popping up over and over again. And I was like, what is happening? So it's just what's in vogue. Yeah. And I mean, some of those studies, to be honest, are really good. Yeah, very interesting. Like, they're looking at really good questions. They're looking at it in really novel ways. I really love poster sessions for that because you can kind of throw crazy stuff at the wall and you're you're just trying to like show that you can do the research. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be groundbreaking, but it could be interesting. Um and some of that stuff's really fascinating because it's it's things that we wouldn't think of. We're able to talk to you know, some people. But half, half, 99% of those will never be published. Or, right. or they're that collective that like have already been published and they're just turning yeah. into a poster. Yeah. 
or it's one analysis out of a giant group of analyses of the same study right because if, if you've got too much if you're trying to explain too much no one's going to stop and read it they're going to stop and read the simple stuff or the mm-hmm. catchy clickbaity stuff yeah. so that's you know and those the actually these questionable research practices are fairly it's fairly normative across the field depending on which research practices but it also breaks up into discipline specific so which one do you think which discipline do you think is the most honest the most honest yeah out of what am i clinical, what am i clinical cognitive developmental forensic health io neuro personality and social psych I, I think because because you went over these numbers with me before, and I, I don't want to like ruin it by kind of knowing the answer. Um, but I was thinking, um, I think it's forensic, and I would argue that it's forensic because it's probably a lot harder to do forensic research, like to like maybe fudge it as much because it's a mm-hmm. I don't know. You're close. They're actually number two by just one percentage point. Um, clinical is at twenty seven percent. Okay. And then uh, forensic is at 28%. Yeah. And then clinical too. It's very difficult to bring people in for multiple sessions. And then like, uh, I mean, it happens, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a whole lot harder than, and, and it's, it's a whole lot more, for lack of a better word, clinical. It's more rigid <laughs> in terms yes. of the methodology that they use. You're, you're watching, you've got very clear cut diagnostic guidelines. If you're messing up your methodology, you're probably also messing up like a medical like ethics guideline. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If, if you're in the forensic and clinical side and your methodology is screwed, well, then you're probably also violating a diagnosis. Yeah, you're yeah, you're about to get like medical malpractice. Right. Um, doesn't mean or it doesn't judicial happen. malpractice. But yeah. Yeah. And then in other fields, like I'd imagine it probably, it probably falls in line very much so with like the people who are doing more like observational clinical stuff versus self-report. We're probably mm-hmm. pretty bad in the social sector just because self-report's so difficult. Yeah, no, the rest, except for one, the rest of them fall in the thirties with the lower end being health, IO and developmental at 30, 31%. And then the upper end being uh, cognitive and neuropsych with 37, 35. And then dear old social psychs at 40, all by its lonesome at the ceiling. But I mean, that, that again is kind of the nature of that incentive structure mm-hmm. in social psychology. It's got to be interesting. It's got to be up to date. There's mm-hmm. so, it's so rapid. And then like one of the things that we were kind of discussing and what to talk about, I think is really important to talk about here is is that replication is probably more important than ever in social psychology and maybe that's why maybe the honest conversation about this i would argue started in social psychology is because you have a lot of people in the field who have probably been arguing for more replications for decades Mm -hmm. because we know as social psychologists part of our training is about how social systems change and Mm -hmm. so the research that you do in the 70s arguably in many ways should not hold up in the 2020s right i would be yeah no like because we learn about historical error all the time in like right. our research methods class like research done before 9-11 and research done after 9-11 is like difficult to compare and contrast like researchers were totally screwed with their studies after not like when 9-11 happens in the middle of oh it. yeah 
Yeah, there's um there's a number of studies after like like Hurricane Katrina, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like these mad, you know, people collecting longitudinal data in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing so well. Um no. that that you have these these issues and then like when we look at it too, like on the other hand, we're probably one of those fields that are doing replications, but again, what replications are being published are typically going to be replications of these kind of big experiments that are, haven't been done in like 40 years. So you look at Berger's Milgram replication, mm-hmm. really cool study. I think really cool study from a, a research design because there's so many ethical changes that have occurred since Berger or since Milgram to Berger in 2008. And so you get to look at like everything he had to do to actually do that study um, right? and still find very similar results, which, which holds up. Um, so like, even when you make these restrictions to make it even harder to get those results, you still find really robust results or it is st- interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, or the studies of um, like racial bias in, in children from like the seventies and eighties. And then you replicate them again in the nineties and two thousands and 2010s. It turns out we're not seeing the same. Which is a, mm-hmm. it's something we want to find. We actually want to do replications to show that these same, maybe underlying thoughts or these same, and, and this includes like the ways that, that minority children do themselves. We don't see it as prominent or the effect sizes are smaller. Those are replications we do not want to succeed. Right. But exactly. then we have to ask the question of like, well, why? Why are they not or why are they replicating? Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating theorizing in of itself yeah that's the interesting thing about social psych is that like we both have the replication crisis but also we have the most glamorous replications like (laughs) with milgram with like the bbc zimbardo prison experiment so it it's a weird dichotomy and also kind of with that incentive structure um this kind of brings me back to fisk because fisk is a social psychologist um she is and we will talk i think more in depth about amy cuddy about a month i believe yep we get into the public academic but fisk has had a little bit of a track record of being on studies that the stats just don't add up to what she's reporting they do um not disclosing whether or not the design is between or within subjects designs not telling us like the amount of data that was used or like doing weird data measures that are seem unintuitive. So like she was a part of the hurricane sexism study, for example, female hurricanes are deadlier than male hurricanes by uh, Jung. I'm going to go with Jung. Um, They don't look Swiss. So Jung Um, from 2014 and which basically claimed that people are sexist. So they don't take, female hurricanes as ser- female named hurricanes as seriously so you would expect a study design that would be like a dichotomous like you know female names male names here's our logistic regression of the sexism scale yeah and then you look or, at like you know um, or you could just look at archival data and say all right i take the hurricane name I look at actual like death counts or property destruction, maybe not property destruction, but actual like death counts. Cause again, if less people are taking it seriously and it's a dangerous hurricane, they're staying at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not leaving the house. 
or we can look at whether or not the state puts in an evacuation order. You could do these really simple like chi-square analyses that would be really interesting yeah. or something like this. And hey, as a Southerner who grew up in Southern Louisiana, who lived through Katrina and other hurricanes, like I'd be really interested because I know that there was a lot of people who didn't take Katrina seriously. Right. But not necessarily for the reason I think she came up with. And then also yeah, there's the data issue. The data issue being that they did not use a dichotomous variable for female and male hurricane names. They used a scale variable for maleness to femaleness of hurricane names. And I don't even know what that means, but apparently there were significant results. So good for them. So like what, like Hurricane Sam? I, I guess so. Is a four? Because like, it's <laughs> kind of in the middle? Could be either way. Hurricane Sam's a four. <laughs> I mean... Hurricane Sam's on a one to seven scale, you know, is 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 Hurricane Sam is Sam a male name or a female name? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of some like she's got a track record of issues here, and I'm not going to say she's an unethical researcher. That would, you know, I don't know, but she's definitely been uh, the focus of a lot of uh, controversy around her methods and her statistical analyses, and she has had to, you know, do revisions and uh put out statements regarding her research very frequently for these reasons and so you know i would expect someone with a track record like that to feel rather defensive um of a replication crisis and criticism of research methodology particularly if your princeton job is on the line and i mean i look at this as what we've been talking about the incentive structure to not replicate the incentive structure to allow this crisis to continue because on one hand, you have the reviewers who are going to read over this and are doing it for free. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just as overworked as everyone is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people like to think of the average academic as being pretty cushy. Um, no, like we're still working. You know, we're still teaching. I'm, you know, burnt out from writing my own paper and having student meetings all day. And it's midnight. I've got a snack and I have to do this peer review before it's due tomorrow. And you don't notice, like, you're not, you're thinking, you, you finish reading that introduction and you're going like, yeah, that was pretty interesting. It's pretty catchy. It seems to kind of make some kind of logical sense um, yeah. in terms of the literature, because you can go and pull stuff and kind of p-hack the literature, as it were. And then you get to the results and, like, the last thing you're thinking of as a reviewer at 9 o'clock at night after, or 11 o'clock, 12, you know, midnight, after a long day of work when you have to review this thing is... How should do they, they determine? Should yeah. they have been using a dichotomous measure or a scale measure? It's like, well, this kind of makes sense. Or maybe you're kind of like glossing over it and trying to get to like the important stuff, kind of like what to look for. And and again, like, I mean, I could take the same paper and give it to seven academics, and they're all going to come up with completely different things they have a problem with. So right. Some people are looking at style. Some people are looking at methods. Some people are looking at the intro. Um, like I tend to be a bit more of a stickler for methods and style mm-hmm. than I am, let's say, your intro. Like your intro just has to kind of, you know, make some cohesive sense and be logical mm-hmm. and cite relevant stuff. And I'm more interested in how your study looks um, because I've come across some that as a reviewer, but I was like, there's a lot wrong here. If I can't make a clear line between your intro and your method, that's when I start getting worried. Yeah. Yeah, these like so big, big red flag things. 
Yeah, like I can pick out some red flags, but if I've already gone through and like unearthed a million red flags before I've gotten to your results section, like you got a problem. What am I gonna say about your results section? Like I don't trust it. I don't care if it looks good. So. But yeah, that that's it's part. But it's part of that that system in which if you can get people maybe focused on like the big catchy title and mm-hmm. the the I mean there was a study that just found and I mean this is something that I've always held on to because every one of my studies has a subtitle in it. I said, you're more likely to get published with a subtitle. Oh, nice. I always do a subtitle. I love a colon. Actually, just any punctuation. Any punctuation. Is likely to increase it. And again, we should probably replicate that. But in my opinion, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Uh, You know, I don't know. In some weird, weird way. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a system that we're focusing, it depends on the person, it depends on the review. We have three reviewers, which is, I mean, it's better than none <laughs> or one. Yeah. Um, but you can have very, very different answers based on who the reviewer is, what their own biases are, what their own research interests are. Mm-hmm. Um, we got we got told a couple of times, like, hey, you should probably cite this one person and like cite this, 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 and this. And I was like, well, I guess who the reviewer is. It's that person <laughs> keeps, they keep telling me to cite, um, you know, these little things that, that, that kind of all play, but that also plays into those incentives. Mm-hmm. It, it, it should be unethical for a reviewer to say, like, you should cite all of my stuff. But right. we're incentivized when people cite our stuff. Mm-hmm. And we want people to read and cite our stuff. And sometimes it is important. Like, I was writing on something that it was probably really important for me to cite his stuff. And they did mention, like, seven other authors that I should probably go in and take a quick look at mm-hmm. and, like, plug in. Because these are relevant people in that field that when we do a lot of, like, cross-site communication stuff, it's super important to get a, a positive reviewer like that. Who's like, hey, this is cool. But you got to do this. Like, you, right. you, you can't leave out this stuff because these people have been doing research 10 years longer than any psychologist has. Mm-hmm. And, and even within psychology, too. Like, I get a lot of, like, I had a situation with one where they were citing a brand new, freshly minted PhD faculty. And they were like, hey, you really should cite this person. That's, this is, they got their career start off on this and they're putting a lot of work into it. And I was like, great. Yeah, no, we'll add them. Yeah, and, and and again, there's like a different way to go about it with that incentive structure is, is like there's that there's that line. And in some cases, like, oh, it makes complete sense to like make this request versus I'm using this as a platform to further my career. Right. <laughs> or I'm I'm fudging data or I'm I'm fudging some of the stuff or like I know that there's a bunch of literature out there that suggests the opposite. Mm hmm. And I'm refusing to acknowledge any of it. Mm-hmm. And that again gets into part of that replication because, like, my study and my very careful construction of what um, variables that I'm looking at, and I left out some dependence. Like, they're they're leaving out that extra stuff, those right. other studies that might call my study into question, that might actually make it harder for me to replicate. Or if I replicate but I add in this third variable, my original study goes away. That's kind of a situation that I think we'll talk more about is that sometimes replications and extensions are also very helpful. Yes. Because you can replicate the original results of a study and then 
you can notice where some blind spots were in the original study and plug those in, and then it completely changes the data and the narrative and the results of what was originally conducted. And that's a, I will have more stories on that in the future of navigating that space, but it's very entertaining. It's very refreshing. It's a different kind of research. It's very exciting. I have a, I have a positive one that doesn't involve any drama that I just wish I could get published somewhere because we did a study. I think I spent more time setting up this actual experimental design because I had to like learn basic Photoshop skills and it took me hours upon hours just to like edit everything. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. I mean, I, the replication worked perfectly, like exactly what we would expect. But the extension didn't work and it'll never mm-hmm. be published because. Yeah. It, it only exists as a poster. Yeah. And it was super fascinating. And I would love to be able to publish a replication of it to say, hey, it worked. Maybe I should just email those authors. And be like, hey, I, I replicated the study just to let you know. You should. I, I really that's should. one thing that's one thing that like people underestimate about researchers is that we are humans and we do like yeah. receiving nice emails. I, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna add that to my list to do next week is to when I'm listening back and editing this, I'm gonna remind myself, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no always always email the authors um especially if you have something nice to say um i think you know like this is a obviously some of the major issues are we're not replicating enough um we're putting more money and emphasis into studies that prioritize novelty and clickbaitiness Um, And as we'll talk about later in the podcast this summer, kind of this pipeline to from like just your run of the mill tenure track faculty to public intellectual, there are definitely incentive structures all along the way to lead us to our application crisis. And so moving forward, what do we do to address the crisis? Like, it's nice to say like, hey, we could just start running replications, but that's the same problem. That's the same individualized, that's an individualized solution to a systemic problem and is just as problematic as blaming individual researchers for this overall problem. I'm going to see if I could find, because it's making me think of, yeah. So let me see if I could find the original authors, because it's a fascinating story, because this is not a new issue that we've been having. So I think it's Adder and Cohen. So there's a study in, this is in behavioral psychology, on, it's one of the more fascinating studies I love talking about in my intro class, is on immunocondition response or immunosuppression condition responses. And they find that um, they give, let's say, like, um, or things like other, other things like, like biological, like some biological conditioning responses. But there, there was a story of like this original study that found that you can like suppress the immune system in rats. So you give them something that makes them sick and it causes their immune system to kind of suppress. And then it comes back and then you give them like sugar water, which was what you added to the original thing that suppressed their immune system. And the sugar water alone suppresses their immune system again. So it's kind of horrifying to think about in like a mad scientist sort of way. Mm-hmm. 
but it was a way to kind of show that you can condition. So like they took, they, they drank this sugar water um, or they drank this particular flavored water with this drug in it that crashed their immune system. And then when they drank it again, they also showed a, a drop in like white blood cell production. Right. Without the drug, they just needed the flavor. Right. But like it kind of went against some of the standard ideas of the time, or at least some of the previously done studies. And so it actually took like multiple colleagues of theirs replicating the study and showing that it worked to get their original paper published. Oh, okay. And this is what kind of makes me think about that like incentive structure and how to fix it is we need to like, it, it, and it's very difficult. It's difficult. Let's say if I find something that goes against someone like a big prominent social psychologist, so like Michael Hogg's work, I find something that completely debunks one of Michael Hogg's theories. Um, and I try to publish that. That is an uphill battle. Yes. Because right off the back, I'm basically saying like, hey, Michael Hall got something wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, he might be really cool with it. And like, that's what we would hope. We would hope. Right. I, I, I've met Michael Hall. He seems like an okay guy. <laughs> like my, my very minimal interactions with him. Yeah, we've only selected him just out of random, <laughs> not in particular. Right. But... But like, like for any of those, like someone who becomes kind of like, I would argue he's kind of a celebrity in the field, but he's not like a celebrity outside of the field. Mm-hmm. Like he might be a psychological because he's just, he's, he's a big name in social psychology, but he's not, he's not like, he's not known as much as someone like Steven Pinker. Right. Or, um, Dawkins. Mm-hmm. So some, someone like that. It would be very difficult to try to go up against these kind of powerhouses if you're a researcher because they not only have themselves, but they have their students and they have their colleagues who are all kind of invested in them being famous. Right. Or them just being right because then that brings all of the trickle down gets questioned too. Right. And so it becomes really difficult if you're going up against current trends and like those fads and fashions, if you decide like, and, and there's a difference too. There's a huge difference between that person who's still trying to spout outdated garbage that just doesn't make sense in modern research and that person who's trying new things and maybe finding some interesting stuff but is being shot down because it doesn't mesh with that one name. Not mm-hmm. not our field as a whole. And there are people who try to say that they're in that boat but they're going mm-hmm. up against like the entire social psych consensus as opposed to you know like if if i'm if i'm basically trying to replicate someone's work like that in itself that's why you need something like the open science project you can't replicate on your own Uh especially if you don't find that replication because what happens is is that you're the bad guy right you're the the antagonist and because the incentive structure you know promotes selfishness then obviously the perception of the replicator is that they are out for their own gain. They're trying to eat someone above them. And and it could be uh, it could be bad in a lot of sense. We'll talk about this with Amy Cuddy. Like in her case, like her colleagues on that paper threw her under the bus because they were like, oh no, we're not going down with you. You're going down on your own. Like mm-hmm. we're not we're not gonna stand up with you for like this one study or just come out and say like, hey, it didn't work. That's interesting. What do, what do we learn? What what is the alternative? Let's start doing future research. It's not how the incentive structure works. Right. The incentive structure. And especially. Throw you under the bus. 
And if she hadn't gotten her TED talk, it probably would have just gone under the bridge. But as soon as like that research becomes a product. And that was all happening at about the same time as a lot of the other issues to where mm-hmm. like, we, like, like we previously talked about, if you're a woman in a particular space. Yes. That is male dominated. Well, your male colleagues are going to throw you under the bus and seeing you fall is going to be a really good feeling for those those trolls involved mm-hmm. uh, who want to see yep. that. I mean, these are the same people who might want to see psychology fail because mm-hmm. psychology is also saying like, hey, we've also got these other studies that have been replicated that kind of say, um, some of the stuff you're doing is bad. Mm-hmm. Some of the societal things that we're embracing are not really positive. There are these other things that could help. And they're like, no, we have an incentive not to let that happen. And yep. so that incentive structure. Hmm. So I think one of the things that I found really, so two major solutions obviously is pursuing open science, publishing yep. your data sets, pre-registering your studies. Um, those all seem to be very positive in addressing this. Um, I also came across this concept of triangulation with research. So rather than relying on a single study that you just replicate over and over again to verify, you actually create a network of different studies that address the same question or hypotheses and test it in different ways. And then the consensus of those studies is taken to determine if there's an effect. So it's less about a particular measure or a particular design and more about here's our overall topic and here's the different ways that we can approach this topic to test the hypothesis. And is, is this sort of like looking at different like mediating and moderating factors or is it like literally asking maybe the same general question with a number of very different hypotheses? Or I think it's the same hypothesis tested in different ways. So if you had like two different surveys, the surveys would contain different variables and different measures that tested the same thing. Okay. You could alternate between like an observational study and a survey and an experimental and lab design. You could do, I don't know, I'm sure this would extend kind of into multidisciplinarity as well, where you could take one question and then use the methods of different fields to answer that one question to see if something is a thing. Um, And I kind of like that idea, um, but that's a lot of extra work that uh, people are not gonna get paid for unless you have funding. And if you have funding, then you don't need to do that because you're just gonna get published anyway, (laughs) which is gonna get you more funding, which will get you more publications, which will get you to Princeton. (laughs) i mean it kind of gets us back to the issue of those incentives now like on the other hand i mean it's 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 kind of tough because like we want to see people publish but we'd rather them maybe take their time and publish good stuff Mm -hmm. yeah and that's kind of the question i also have about i don't know if like pre-registration even addresses it either because one if you were to place blame on an entity like it'd be very easy to be like well the journals seem very responsible for this so why do we trust their solution yeah i mean because there's the big issue of the journal 
<laughs> yeah. So and the monetary incentive of what they publish versus what they don't, of trying to raise their own. Uh, what is what is the score? The their um, Q, QI impact factor. Impact factor. The IF score. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to raise their impact factor, trying to like have this like really relevant multi-sided research. Um, I mean, you have you have journals that aren't as concerned with that, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's it's really difficult, especially if you're doing something on the fringe. Like, I'm still waiting to hear back. My fingers are crossed that like this UFO interest in UFO study, which is super relevant right now. Like, this is like the perfect time to publish something like this if you were a journal, right? Um, is is it, it's gone through like six six or seven journals now, and it's not that it's been bad. It's just that like this doesn't really fit the purview mm-hmm. of a journal. I'm like, what do you mean? It's psychology. It's based on media. Why wouldn't it fit in the psychology of media studies? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I get it. it. It makes sense that it doesn't fit with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just doesn't quite fit in. And it's really tough sometimes to like find that right journal. And, and it's, it's especially disheartening if you like submitted it to something like journal of social psychology or journal of social and personality psychology. They're like, this doesn't fit. I'm like, but it's social psychology. Like that is your purview. How does it not fit? Yeah. Like tell me, yeah. tell me what's wrong with it. It's that it's, you know, tell me what, tell me what's wrong with it. Not that it doesn't fit because it has to fit. In a social psychology journal, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So there's other things afoot besides replication crisis being on individual researchers, and that's you know I'm concerned about pre-registration for that reason. Um, I'm also concerned about, like you said earlier, about scale validation needing thousands of participants, like the number of people required to get published in journals for a study is going up mm-hmm. drastically. And so for junior researchers or researchers at lower institutions, like the publishability of their work is getting rarer by the day because people are freaking out about replication issues. So they're throwing thousands and thousands of people into their studies. And when that becomes the norm, you then create a economy barrier and then you you have the people who can just turn to something like imturk mm-hmm. and then we find out that imturk has been exploited by bots mm-hmm. and we've known this for years but only in the last couple of years has it been widely documented at the conferences and we also know from imturk because i'm about to <laughs> eat my words tomorrow for my dissertation defense uh that imturk the people who if you get through the bots and you get to the actual humans most of the humans actually misrepresent themselves because they're incentivized to take as many surveys as possible so they're going really quick and they're not really paying attention and they're switching up their demographic information so they can get access to more studies ah so they're saying they're female or male to take the other studies or they're saying that they're not white so that they can take a bunch of the mm-hmm. yikes yikes so and so but then again that's what happens when you incentivize it and it's all yeah. about getting that couple of bucks for or that couple of coins for an amazon mturk study as opposed to keeping it more open 
or mm-hmm. making the incentive not as immediate, like the gift card drawing. It's a great way to do that. Say, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I got a thousand participants. Only five of you are going to get gift cards. So odds are you're not, but please help me out. I got 1,200 participants. Mm-hmm. That's a much better way. But I'm seeing a trend again. Daniel, I'm seeing another trend. From replication crisis to journals to shady research practices to MTurk participants. Is it money? Is it the thing we Capitalism? No. (laughs) Of course it's not, Thomas. Of course it's not. We're hardworking scientists. (laughs) It's the the individual that's a problem. It's not the societal issue. Nope. There is no society. There's only individuals and families. I was going to say, and now we're going to get canceled by personality psychology, but we've been canceled by personality psychology for too long. Yeah, it's fine. They don't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Now they're really going to get mad at us. I'm (laughs) kidding. I'm kidding. I love y'all. Thank you for the big five and for helping us debunk Myers-Briggs. I appreciate it. yeah. I mean... If I never use anything in personality, it's going to be like, it's still, still going to use the big five. The research is super interesting. Dark triad. Great, great work, guys. Awesome. Great. So Appreciate you. <laughs> so speaking of issues with replication, leaving out information, maybe not delving into cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary research, I think it's time for the bias of the week. Bias of the week. Our bias of the week is attentional bias. Attentional bias. Okay. The tendency to ignore some of the possible outcomes when making judgments. Oh, that's brutal. Perfect for today's episode. It is perfect. (laughs) Because attentional bias is probably something that would come up with someone doing maybe some legitimate research. Mm Mm-hmm. Come up with some hypotheses, you get your results and go, ah, if only I would have thought of that. And then you're like, oh, I could fix it. Like, great. Like, it's, it's, it's an easy, you know, like, I'll run another study. I'll try something new. Uh, P hacking is when you look at it and go, no, 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 no. we're just going to see what works. <laughs> I totally yeah. thought about that all along. It's like anti hindsight bias. Hindsight biased. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, because reviewers don't know A, when the study was run, B, what order everything happened in. Like, it's all down to the methods section. Yeah, and it's based on what you put in it. Mm -hmm. And, And the order you put it in and how you present it in the best light possible because, again, you're playing the system. Because it incentivizes you to cheat. Mm-hmm. And that's not good. Nope. And again, like, how do you, but like, that's the big question. How do you change that? You know, it's, it's that you're from other academics, I hear from people in other fields. If we want to change the system, we want to change the system. We need to try it in new ways. And it's difficult because once you get into that position of power, you are still incentivized to keep it. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, I know when people ask me what the solution is, I don't like the answer. <laughs> I, I mean it, it really means it really means maybe doing something like a full open access. Open access to everything. Open access journals. Um I mean, because 
at this point, like if we were getting funding to do like a website or to like self-publish stuff, I mean, the editors, I don't know. I mean, does your average journal editor get paid? Like the editors in chiefs and stuff like that? I don't actually know. Because a lot of them are still at institutions. They're still yeah. doing research. I would they're still you, teaching. They're probably not. Um, unless they're getting paid to do something like, like, just like to go like, like, we'll pay for your conference or something like that. Like, like it's, it's, I would argue that's very different than getting a salary for doing mm-hmm. um, I know the copy editors are paid and obviously the CEOs of, not the the CEOs of Elsevier and well, yeah, they're Taylor and paid. Francis are getting paid quite well. Yeah. I, I would argue if anyone should get paid, it should be the copy editors. They should get a lot more than whatever they get paid now. And I don't even know. You could tell me they get paid $200,000 a year and I'd say, give them five. Because <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> yes. And yeah, that, that just, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a mess. It's a, it's a mire. But if you take anything from this, this podcast that we would argue we don't have a replication crisis, it's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, at least and in the, the way issue that... is, is we're not replicating studies. Right. We're just like at all. Not that the replications are working. They don't have to work. We're just not doing it. We're not replicating. We're not adding. So we're not doing that kind of replication mm-hmm. with the twist, which is honestly something that if I learned anything from my mentor, it's that replication with the twist. Like that's really important because yes. you're technically doing something new. So you have this argument to get in with the current system that exists. But you're also replicating something that already exists. So you do both. Right. And so replicate with a twist to, you know, work, work within the confines of the current miserable system we have, and then hopefully be open and willing to change it when you're in power. That's what we should do. We should open up a like research uh, company and call it replicate with a twist where we drink wine and replicate studies. Well, when this podcast eventually falters, we're going to run a podcast called replicate with a twist where we get drunk. Ooh. And we talk about how we'll replicate studies. There you go. Cool. Maybe maybe we'll just do that as our next flex course. Oh, that'd be cool. Replicate with a twist. Replicate with a twist. <laughs> so very cool. I, well, yeah, this was good. Yeah, good. I mean, it's it's not as as deep of a dive as it could be because we don't have eight hours. Yeah, no, you would need an entire class to do this. Um, but I think this is a good starting point for the summer. Um, I think moving forward. We've got some several spicy episodes to kind of build up, you know, some literacy around how research works, the relationship between like the like higher education and the public knowledge, um, issues within psychology to kind of get us to our, you know, all stars July episodes where we talk about public intellectuals and why they're terrible famous academics celebrity academics it's gonna be interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) controversial even because yeah these people can't get canceled because they're already too famous but we can because we're not famous enough yep nope (laughs) with that wish us luck thank yes wish us luck and just you know we will touch back with replicating issues in the future but this is a good foundation so yeah Take us with that. Goodbye. Bye.